This is a special joy for me to be here, and I don't know how many years ago it was that I first came here, 2014, 2014. and I was here, I think, representing uh, Ligonier Ministries, and we tied in a worship service, and um, I really met your pastor and insisted that he come be a part of our doctor ministry program, and and. I would have to, and he just breezed through our program. I don't know. I don't know if you know how smart this man is, but uh, he he is a pastor scholar. Um, he is a devoted student of the Word of God. He knows sound doctrine. He knows theology, and that became very apparent to us at the Master's Seminary as he was studying to be a part of our program. And he um, really is, I would say, if we had to point to one graduate from our program who would be the quintessential graduate of the Master's Seminary, the Doctor of Ministry program, I, I would point to, to Brian Fairchild. And he really just stands out, I think, uh, over and above and beyond uh, the other men that we've had come through our program. And I, I don't say that lightly, I say that very sincerely. So this church has such a gifted expositor of the Word of God, uh, such a skilled theologian and exegete, and such a, a, a tender shepherd for the flock, and I just want to affirm him in front of you that God has uh, opened the windows of heaven and poured out a great blessing upon your spiritual life and your spiritual growth. Um, I think the case can be made that the primary means of grace to flow into your life is when you sit under the preaching of the Word of God. That it exceeds even your own personal study, your own personal devotional reading. It exceeds books that you would read. That the singular most important means of grace by which God is sanctifying you and strengthening you is by sitting under the preaching of the Word of God. And so God obviously has great plans for this church. Um, I think you need to put a balcony in here. Uh, Brian, I can't even walk to get to my Gatorade over there. I'm stepping, <laughs> stepping over people, and the line for the men's room looked like the line to the ladies' room in other churches. So <laughs> it's quite a line. So uh, I will say I cut in line just so I could be sure to be on church on time. Uh, here, and I do apologize. I know we're running a little bit late, and it's because the guest speaker went too long during Sunday school. So our goal is to meet, to, to, is actually to, to beat the Methodists to dinner tonight, okay? So that, <laughs> that's our goal, so I, I think we can do it. So um, your pastor asked if I would preach uh, a message that really has, uh, I've taken it and written a book by the same title, Show Me Your Glory. And so if you would take your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, the title of this message is Show Me Your Glory. Exodus chapter 33, and I want to read uh, verses 18 to 23. I know we've already had two scripture readings, but I want to set in front of you uh, the text that we will be looking at today, and we will be looking into chapter 34 as well. Beginning in verse 18, Then Moses said, I pray you, 
show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. It was A.W. Tozier who said years ago, God is looking for men and women in whose hands His glory is safe. By this, Tozier meant that God is looking for men and women who live with a passionate pursuit for the glory of God. God's glory is primary in all of life. God's glory is preeminent. God's glory is supreme and it is foundational. Either we live for the glory of God or we do not live at all. We merely exist and live an empty, hollow life. It is living for the glory of God that enables us to live as God intended us to live. The beginning and end of all things is the glory of God. The divine glory is the sun around which the entire universe resolves. We were made to live for the glory of God. This is our master plan. This is our chief end. This is our supreme goal. This is job number one. No matter where you go to work, no matter what your family is, no matter what your ministry is, the banner over it all for each and every one of us is to live for the glory of God. Whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Everything in your life is secondary compared to living for the glory of God. Everything in your life is peripheral and is on the perimeters of your life. There is only one pinnacle for each and every one of us, and that is living for the glory of God. That, that is why I'm captivated by this passage of Scripture, and I'm so glad that your pastor has asked me to, to bring this to you today because it has refreshed my own mind and my own heart again as to what must be number one in my life. As we look at this, we see what it looks like for a man to be sold out for the glory of God. So let me set the scene, set the stage for you for this particular passage. Moses is on Mount Sinai. He's already been to the mountaintop once where he received God's law. And while he was receiving God's law on the top of Mount Sinai, the people of God were down in the valley breaking God's law by their very lives. And in righteous indignation, Moses smashed the two tablets. Leading this group of people through the wilderness 
will be the challenge of his life. It will be a stress far beyond anything that you and I could even imagine. And it is in this context, with this heavy weight of responsibility that is resting upon his shoulders to to lead the people of God out of Egypt and through the wilderness and into the promised land, this will be the greatest difficulty he will ever know. And it is in this context that Moses prays, God, show me your glory. This is what each and every one of us here today need to pray. We all need to pray, show me your glory. This needs to be escalated to the top of our prayer requests for one another, for ourselves. So let me ask you this. Do you need strength for the journey and for the task that God has laid out in front of you? Do you need God's encouragement today? Do you need God's peace? Do you need to know God's will for your life? Do you need direction? Do you need to to have your heart reignited with one holy passion for God? Then this is your prayer today. God, show me your glory. So let's walk through this passage because nothing could be more practical for our lives today than for us to stand in Moses' sandals and to pray this very same request, God, show me your glory. So I want to begin in verse 18 with the request. This was a daring request. More than anything else, Moses wanted God to show him his glory. So notice he says in verse 18, Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. What he is asking for is a fuller, greater, deeper knowledge of God, that he would grow in the grace and knowledge of God, that he would know more of an experiential knowledge of God, not just in his head, but in his heart and in his life experience. So what is the glory of God? If we were to pray, God, show me your glory, what is the glory of God? Theologians divide out the glory of God into two basic categories. This will be helpful for our thinking this morning. There is first God's intrinsic glory. And God's intrinsic glory is the sum and the substance of all that God is. It is the, 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 a comprehensive knowledge of all of the attributes of God, the being of God, the name of God, the perfections of God, they all come together to comprise the glory of God. It is, again, the sum and the substance of all that God is. We cannot give God intrinsic glory. God is who God is. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Neither can we take away from the intrinsic glory of God because God is transcendent and God is immutable. God is never increasing, not God is never decreasing. God is who God is, and all that God is, is the glory of God. The second category is what we'll call ascribed glory. 
That is the glory that we are to give to God. Ascribe glory is worship. It is praise. It is thanksgiving. It is adoration. And ascribed glory is the result of beholding His intrinsic glory. The more you come to know God, the more you come to see the awesomeness and the majesty of of who God is, the more your heart rises up and gives to Him the praise and the worship and the glory that belongs to His name alone. So what is Moses praying here? When he says, show me your glory, he is asking God to pull back the veil yet a bit more and to allow him to peer into the, who God is, that he would come to see in greater way something of the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of who God is. This is his prayer. And Moses, amazingly, is praying for this because Moses has already beheld his glory, has he not? Even Moses, the man of God, is praying that God would show him more of his glory. Moses, who stood at the burning bush, Moses, who heard God say, remove the sandals from your feet, the ground upon which you stand is, is holy ground. Moses, who beheld the, the, the glory of God in that burning bush. Moses, who came to the Red Sea and saw God part the Red Sea and the children of God go through and then close the Red Sea down and drown the hordes of Pharaoh, Moses has already seen with his own eyes the glory of God. Moses has seen the glory of God, the glory cloud that led the children of God through the wilderness. The, that, that God has fed them manna by day and by night. Moses has seen the glory of God far more than any man here or woman here today has ever beheld the glory of God. And yet from Moses, Moses knows he's not yet arrived. There is so much more of God to know and to behold. And if Moses is to undertake this position of leadership and to lead the children of God, he must have a deeper knowledge of God to embolden him and strengthen him and give him the wisdom that he, must, that he so desperately needs. God, show me more of your holiness. God, reveal more of your sovereignty. God, give me a greater insight into your sovereignty and into your grace, or I will not be able to stand up under the heavy demands that you have laid in front of me. Now, here's the point for you. If Moses, who has seen so much of the glory of God, who knows so much of who God is, prays, God, show me your glory. How much more so must every one of us here today pray, God, I've not yet arrived. I barely know but, a, but an inkling of who you are. Lord, I need a, a fuller understanding of your being, of your word, of your, of your works, of your grace, of your judgment of judgments of of your mercy. God, pull back the veil and show me your glory. This is what each and every one of us 
should pray every time we open our Bible. God, show me your glory. This is what we should pray every time we come to church and we sit under the preaching of the Word of God and we sing these glorious hymns. God, show me your glory. This is what we should pray as we find ourselves in in trials and testings and difficulties and we are growing weak in the midst of this, this, these difficult times, our prayer should be, God, show me your glory more than anything else in our lives. We must know more of the fullness of who God is. This is the request. May it be your request and my request today. Now, please note, second, the response in verse 19. How did God respond to, to this daring request by, by, by Moses? Well, what we see here in verse 19 is that God gave a favorable response, response to his, sermon, his servant. And so he says, I myself will make my goodness pass before you. So that is an affirmative answer. Yes, I will show you more of myself. And how interesting this is, you can see it in your own Bible, that for God to show His glory is for God to show His goodness to Moses. Because everything about God is is good. And so, if we are to know God, we can only know God to the extent that God chooses to make Himself known to us. The greater a person is, the more he is really in res- responsible and in charge of how much he will let a lesser know of him. And so God says, I will make my goodness pass before you. And he says, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord. God says, I will preach to you, Moses. Earlier, remember I said the primary means of grace to come into someone's life that brings the knowledge of God above your own personal study and above your own personal reading is to sit under the preaching of the Word of God? That's what God does here in answer to Moses. God mounts the pulpit. God Himself proclaims Himself. This is a sermon by God about God. This is as good as it gets. God God will exposit Himself. God will exegete His own character and make this known to Moses. In the Bible, a name represents the character of a person. And for God to proclaim His name is for God to declare and to preach the glories of all that He is. Now, please note, he goes on to say in verse 19, and this verse will be quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 9, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And what God is saying here is, Moses, you will only know me to the extent that I choose to make myself known to you. I've known many great men in my life. 
And I could only know them at dinner, in a car, in a room, to the extent they would choose to open up to me. I was at their mercy. For them to desire or not to desire, to be transparent with me, and to make their mind and their heart known to me. Multiply that 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000, and therein you will see your relationship to God. That it is God who chooses to make Himself known to us, and to the extent to which we may know God. What a privilege it is to know God. And he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, meaning I will not be gracious to everyone. I will serve justice and righteousness on many people. But there will be those whom I choose to bestow my sovereign grace upon them. And I will be compassionate. I will show compassion on those whom I will show compassion And it is this verse that Paul quotes in Romans 9, verse 15, that is in direct support of the doctrine of sovereign election. And so it is with you and me. Whatever it is you know of God personally, it is because God has chosen to make Himself known to you. It's not because there is anything better about you. It's not because there was anything in you of a higher intellect or a deeper passion. It was God who sovereignly chose to pull back the veil and allow His glory to shine into your life. So this now leads third to the restrictions. Beginning in verse 20 and extending really into the next chapter into verse 4, God mercifully sets restrictions upon Moses' request to see his glory. In essence, God has said, yes, I will make my glory known to you, but there will be restrictions. And so in verse, in verse 20, we read, But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me, and live. Moses, if you were to look directly upon my glory, you would die. Because my glory is too blinding, it is too blazing, it is too great. If God's glory was suddenly to appear in this room in full measure of manifestation and revelation of who God is, we would all be dead. We wouldn't be able to bear it up in this flesh and body, flesh and bone body that that we have. That's why when we go to heaven, God has to give us a glorified body or we would burn up like a cinder in the immediate presence of God. It would be easier for you to walk barefoot on the surface of the sun this moment than for you to walk into the presence of the holiness of God in your present state. That's why God must give you glorified eyes with which you will will be able to behold Him. 
God will have to give you a glorified body to withstand the, the radiant splendor and majesty of the emanation of the glory of God. And for you to be in closest proximity to who God is in heaven, you could not do it as you are. And so God says to Moses, you cannot see my face. It would be easier for you to stare directly into the sun and not blink than for you to behold the glory of God. So the Lord said, verse 21, There is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. Moses, in essence, you may stand close to me, but not too close. And you must hide yourself in the rock so that it will shield you between you and me. There, there will have to be a, a, a buffer between you and me because you cannot look directly upon me, Moses, and live to tell about it. Verse 22. And as I read this, what flashes into my mind is how we cannot comprehend how glorious God is in the blazing fullness of His holiness as God manifests Himself as a ball of light. And so in verse 22, it will come about while my glory is passing by. It will be radiant light. It's how God chooses to... to, to represent Himself. And in fact, when we read in Revelation chapter uh, 21, it says at the end of the chapter, in the new heavens and the new earth, that God will just snuff out the sun and His own face will light up the entire universe. The glory that will come shining forth from the holiness of God will illuminate the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no need for any artificial light. And so God is going to make this light pass by in front of Moses. Moses has no idea what he's asked for. I want to know more of you. So verse 22, it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock. That's the first buffer. There's going to be a series of buffers here. The first is, Moses, you're going to have to hide in this rock. And this rock is going to have to shield you from, from the emanation of my, of my glory. And then at the end of verse 22, and cover you with my hand. That's the second buffer. That, that God's hand will literally, as it were, have to envelop Moses and shield Moses from the face of God. And then verse 23, a third buffer. Then I will take my hand away and he will see my back. Moses, you can't even look upon my face. Moses, all you will be able to see is my backside. The afterglow of my holiness. 
the other side of me, Moses. At the end of verse, at the end of verse 23, but my face shall not be seen. If you ever turn on Christian television and hear some quack say they've seen God, you can just write them off as a heretic. Because if they have seen God appear to them in the bathroom, they would be dead. Or someone claims to have gone to heaven and come back to tell us about it. You have no idea the blazing brightness, blinding display of the perfections of God's own person. So verse 1 of the next chapter, Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones. Remember the former ones, he's already smashed them, and God will now reissue the Ten Commandments a second time on these two stone tablets, and he says in verse 1, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. God will reissue the Ten Commandments exactly as they were first given, verse 2. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. Moses has only a short amount of time to cut the two stones, and Moses was was to return to the mountaintop for another divine appointment, for another divine encounter with God. Moses is asked to see the glory of God. And God has said, yes, meet me on the mountaintop, and I will show you more of my glory. And he says, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. Verse 3, no man is to come up with you. Moses, this this, this will be one-on-one, you and me. This will not be a group encounter with me. He says, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. This is as private and personal as it gets between God and, and Moses. So much so, he says at the end of verse 3, even the flocks and the herds may not... May not graze in front of the mountain? This is not a whosoever will may come, Moses. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. Moses, it is you and you alone. I've drawn a circle around your name. No one else may come up this mountain with you. The the animals may not even graze at the base of this mountain. This is between you and me, Moses. This is a personal relationship. This is an individual relationship. Verse 4, so he, Moses, cut out the two stone tablets like the former ones. It was immediate obedience by Moses. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. This was immediate obedience. This was full obedience. This was really what would prove to be a costly obedience. And as Moses headed up the mountain to fulfill this divine appointment, it was to encounter 
God in a way that he had never encountered God before. That everything in his spiritual journey with the Lord had been but a preparation for this new chapter in Moses' life as Moses sought to behold yet more of God. So this leads forth to the revelation. Beginning in verse 5, God fulfills his promise to Moses by giving him a fuller revelation of who he is. So we read in verse 5, the Lord descended on the cloud. (laughs) You talk about a dramatic entrance. God is riding a glory cloud as he is being as he is descending out of heaven to come down to Moses' level. Moses could never pull himself up to God's level. God must graciously choose to come all the way down to Moses' level. And God is actually in the cloud. He's not just riding on the cloud. God is in the cloud, and the cloud is being lit up. The cloud is being illumined with bright light. This was the same glory cloud that guided Moses and Egypt out of the promised land. It is the same glory cloud that stood between Moses and Pharaoh. It it was the same glory cloud that appeared on Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments the first time to, to Moses. And now this same glory cloud becomes really a fourth buffer. Now, not only must Moses hide himself in the rock, and not only must God cover Moses with his hand, and not only must Moses only be able to behold the the afterglow and the backside of, of God's glory, now there's this fourth buffer as the glory cloud surrounds God, The glory of God is inside the cloud. And the cloud in some way becomes like a a filter that that holds back some of the revelation of, of who God is to Moses. Moses could not have taken the full disclosure of who God is while he's here upon the earth. This is a dramatic moment. And so the glory cloud partially veils who God is. And we read in verse 6, Then the, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. God now preaches. God now speaks verbally. And this physical light shining forth from the presence and being of God is now even overshadowed by a greater light. The truth that God will preach concerning Himself. And God will now preach on God. It will be a two-point sermon. And God will proclaim His name, 
and God will proclaim His nature. And this word for proclaim, kara in the Hebrew, means a loud utterance. It means to lift up the voice. It means to roar. It means to roar like a lion. God does not mumble when He speaks. God speaks with commanding authority. And He karah, he, he proclaims His name and His nature now to Moses. Please note the first heading, the divine names. God proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. Do you see that? It's the only place in the Bible where those, where those names come together in, in one place. And the repetition of the Lord underscores the importance of this divine name. It is Yahweh. This name was first given to Moses at the burning bush. In Exodus 3, verse 14, I am who I am. And what that means is that God is self-sufficient within Himself. That God has no needs outside of Himself. There is no hole in His holiness. That God is independent of His creation. And His creation meets no need in Him. That God is autonomous. That we are all completely Dependent upon God every moment of every day for everything. But God is not dependent upon us for anything. If God so desired, He could have the stones to cry out and proclaim the gospel. God did not create us because He was lonely. He had perfect fellowship within the Trinity. The Lord Jesus was in the bosom of the Father, as though His head was resting upon His chest. An intimate, personal, close fellowship. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Pros, face to face with God. And God the Father had all of His needs met within Himself, And the Son had all of His needs met within Himself. And the Spirit had all of His needs met within Himself. That's what the name Yahweh, Jehovah, means. That God is never increasing. That God is never decreasing. That God is immutable. God is forever the same. That He is the source of of all grace. He is the source of all mercy. He is the source of everything that you and I need. And we bring to Him nothing that he needs. How humbling. How dependent. How trusting we should be. And then the second name, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God. It is the name L, E-L, which means the strong one. One who is, has invested himself with infinite power. He is the all-powerful one. He is mighty to save. He is mighty to sanctify. 
He is mighty to strengthen. He is mighty to carry out everything that is in His sovereign will and eternal purpose. There is none who can stay the right hand of God. He but thinks it and it comes to pass. He but says, let there be light and there will be light. So God proclaims His name to Moses. Just like you and I need to have His name proclaimed to you just like you just heard. When we come to Him in prayer, we are like little babies, totally dependent upon God for every need that we have in our life. It is in Him that we live and move and have our being. We cannot even wake up in the morning except God continues to extend life to us. He's appointed not only the day of our birth, but the day of our death. He's appointed every day in between. All of our days are numbered. Everything that transpires in the course of our life is a part of His master plan. God is totally, completely in control of our lives. And then God proclaims his nature. He says that he is the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate. Compassionate. Ancient gods of mythology were stern and strict. The God, the true God of heaven and earth is compassionate. It comes from a word that means the womb, and it speaks of the warmth of a mother's love and care for her child, her baby, that comes from the womb. There is no more tender picture in all of the universe than of a nursing mother feeding her little baby, cooing, singing to that little baby as she gives of herself to that little baby and holds and cuddles that little baby in her arms. Nothing rises to that level of tenderness. It's the very word that's used here. That God is so tender and so gracious and so giving to His children that He assumes total, complete responsibility for our care, for our provision, and for our protection. Do you understand how compassionate God is? And then He adds, and gracious. And the word gracious here speaks of His, his unmerited favor towards us. And it comes from a Hebrew word that means to bend down or to stoop. As though God from the heights of heaven reaches down and bends down all the way to our lowest level in order to show kindness to us and to care for our needs and to be merciful towards us. This is God preaching Himself 
And Moses needs to know this because Moses is a, is a flawed leader. And Moses is leading a flawed people. And he needs to know that in the midst of all of their even disobedience, and going in circles for 40 years in the wilderness and going nowhere fast, that this God remains compassionate to them and tender-hearted and, and gracious to these people who are being so disobedient want to go back to Egypt. And then he adds, slow to anger. You and I would not have been slow to, to anger means to be long-suffering, to be patient, to be forbearing, that God is rarely in a hurry to discipline, that He gives multiple opportunities for repentance and confession and to make it right. He, he gives a second and a third chance and many times many more chances. He's the God of a, of a second chance as he extends repeated opportunities that he's never in a hurry to chastise us. He is slow to anger because of his great love for us. Does Moses need to know this? As they will be going, as I just said, in circles for 40 years? If you and I had been God, it would have been a very short wilderness journey. I mean, it would have been about a weekend. And God endured all of that. And then it says abounding in loving kindness. Do you see that next? There's just this overflow supply of, of loving kindness to meet their every need. That This word for loving kindness speaks of his... His loyal love. A father can be disappointed in his children, but he remains loyal to them with an allegiance that is an unbreakable allegiance. His love is unwavering and unfaltering towards his own. It, it, it is a steadfast love for his people. And Moses needs to know this. You need to know this. Some of you have been going in a circle for some time. So some of you, your, your life has not been charted on a straight timeline. I mean, some of you have veered off of the path and, and gone your own way at times and made hasty decisions and, and, and gone in a, in a counterproductive way. And God has been so slow to anger and He's been so abounding in, in loving kindness towards you as he, as he has me. And then he adds, who, in verse 7, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. It's the same word, loving kindness. And when he says for thousands, he doesn't mean for thousands of people. That's to be understood. The idea is for thousands of generations, for thousands of ages, that there is no end to the love of God towards his, his own people. For I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor principalities nor things to come nor things present shall ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. We will never exhaust 
the love of God towards us, his people. And God affirms this to Moses, that God just keeps on keeping on loving us. There is no diminishing in his love toward us. That's not just poetic devotional talk. That is hardball theology. That is sound doctrine. That is, that is sheer truth that we will never come to the end of God's love toward us. No matter how many times you've blown it, no matter how, much, how many times you, you have sinned, and we should never sin, but it will never erase the love of God towards us. And then he says, who forgives iniquity? The word forgives means to lift up and take something away. It means to carry off a heavy burden in all of our iniquity. And he says transgression, which is rebellion against God, and sin, which is missing the mark, that he has taken all of this off of our shoulders and our soul and has placed it upon his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has taken our sins far, far away. When you confess your sin to God, He will forgive you. There is an ocean of forgiving grace for just the little grain of sand of your sin to wash it away and to, and to remove it from you as far as the east is from the west. You can measure the North Pole from the South Pole. You cannot measure the east is from the west. That's how far God has removed our sins from us. He has taken our sins and placed them behind His back where He sees them no more. He has taken our sins, Micah seven eighteen says, and buried them in the depths of the sea where no man can go to find them. It says, our transgressions, he remembers no more. How great is the forgiveness of God toward us in Christ. And then he says, yet, yet. Don't think God, that this is all there is about God. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now listen to what I'm about to say. Every sin in the history of the world will be punished in full under the full measure of his own divine law. No sin will be swept under the carpet. No sin will be left unexposed. No sin will be left unpunished to the full. Every sin in the history of the world will either be punished in hell or punished in Christ on the cross. But no sin will go unpunished. 
And the only solution to this dilemma that he will forgive all sin yet not leave sin unpunished is the cross of Jesus Christ. As our sins, we who believe, were transferred to the Lord Jesus Christ and Him who knew no sin, God made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 But for the unbeliever, their sin remains on them. And the Father will crush them and damn them forever. And they will burn in hell in the lake of fire and brimstone ages without end, and hell will not be hot enough for them because they have offended and violated the holiness of Almighty God. And just one sin by one person is sufficient to damn them forever. In fact, one sin by one person has condemned the entire human race. The one sin of Adam, just one sin against holy God, and the whole universe has suffered for it. That's how holy God is. And that is how glorious the cross is. That God has taken our sins and placed them upon Christ and brought down the full weight of His wrath and vengeance and fury upon His Son upon the cross. Your sin is either on Christ or it's on you. And if it's on you and you die, you will be tormented forever in hell. And I make no apology for God. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquities of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations, what that means is that the influence of a father lives on beyond him and the decisions he makes and the course that he takes and the life that he lives casts a shadow over that family And there is an influence that is set in motion like a domino effect that is so great and so strong it will go beyond just your own children to your grandchildren to their grandchildren unless there is divine intervention by the mercy and the grace of God. So this brings us finally to the reverence. In verse 8, How did Moses respond to this divine sermon? It's the way that you and I must respond today. Verse 8, Moses made haste. There was an immediate response in Moses. Just like there must be an immediate response this moment in your life. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth. There is this utter submission and self-humiliation and lowliness of heart that now Moses makes towards God as he prostrates himself upon upon the ground and, and lowers himself in the very presence of God. Moses could no longer stand even in the presence of God as he fell to his face to the ground, just like 
the Apostle John in the island of Patmos, it says he became like a dead man. That just means when, when John saw the glory of the risen Christ in the island of Patmos, he, he just fainted. He went unconscious. He couldn't even remain standing. He, he went to the ground. He dropped to his knees and then collapsed unconscious. And Moses, something of this, now immediately bows low towards the earth and worships. What else could he possibly do? What else? Is it a time for a Q&A with God? The word worship here means to bow low as an inferior before a superior. And Moses has now seen more than ever who God is. And because he now sees who God is, he sees himself for who he is. It is not until we see who God is can we understand who we are. Everything begins with the knowledge of God. And we will have an inflated view of ourselves until we come to see who God is. And the most humble people on planet earth are people who have come to behold the glory of God. It shatters our self-righteousness. It, 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 it just lowers us in the presence of God. No one is left standing in the presence of God. So I want to conclude by asking you this. Will you pray, God, show me your glory? Would you dare to pray to God? God, I want to know more of you. What I have come to know of you to this point is glorious, it is great, but I have but skimmed the surface of the infinite majesty of who you are. God, I must know you more. Do you need direction in your life to make decisions? Then pray, God, show me your glory. Do you need to have your heart rekindled afresh with zeal and passion and excitement and enthusiasm for God? Then pray this prayer, God, show me your glory. Do you need strength for the journey? Do you need strength to lead your family? Do you need strength to be a mother, to be a father? Do you need strength at work? Do you need strength to, to press on in the midst of this God-forsaken culture in which we, in which we live? then if you, want, if you need to be emboldened and energized in your innermost person, then pray, God, show me your glory. And if you need to come to know God in a saving relationship, realizing you have never been born again, this really begins with, God, show me your glory. I need to see the standard by which I will be measured. I need to see that I fall short of the glory of God. And I need to see that you have sent your Son into this world who is the image of the invisible God, who lived the life I could have never lived and died the death I deserved to die. He died in our place, my place, bearing the sins of his people. Then call upon his name, and you will find much compassion and much mercy with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the friend of sinners. He's come to seek and to save that which is lost. He's come looking for you. He's, he is a physician who's come not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. Tell him how sick you are. 
Tell him how sinful you are. He's come only for people like you. He only died for one kind of person, a sinner. Until you come clean about your sin, there'll be no mercy for you, only justice and judgment. But if you will say, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner, you will find much forgiveness and much grace. I know him. He has taken me in. He will take you in if you will but call upon his name. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ball's in your court. Will you respond? And will you come to Christ by faith? Will you trust him? Will you repent of your sins? Will you deny yourself? Will you take up a cross? Will you become a follower of Christ? Will you step out of the world? Will you step out of darkness? Will you come to the light? Will you eat the bread of life? Will you follow Christ? That is the question for you. And if you've never come to follow Christ, today, today could be that day for you, where you begin this journey that will take you one day all the way to His presence in heaven. May God give you that grace and that mercy.